With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Banking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and uh, today I'm joined by a special guest. The guest we have joining us today is Stephen Napier. Now, Dr. Stephen Napier is an associate professor of philosophy at Villanova University. He specializes in clinical bioethics and theories of knowledge. His previous employment includes a clinical ethics fellowship at St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville. He was a research protections analyst at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and an ethicist with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. His publications include two books, Virtue Epistemology, Motivation and Knowledge, Bloomsbury 2008, and most recently, Uncertain Bioethics, Moral Risk and Human Dignity, Routledge 2019. He has published various articles that address issues in the philosophy of religion, beginning of life issues, end of life issues, and research ethics. He is originally from Minnesota, and his non-academic interests include social histories. Stephen, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Clinton. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, by, by the way, did I uh, did I get your name uh, pronounced correctly? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, it's a long okay. Napier. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, my, I actually have a, a brother named Stephen, and he's kind of hostile to people who spell their name with a P-H but still pronounce it Stephen. So um, <laughs> he thinks it should be pronounced uh, Stephen. But um, yeah, uh, gl- glad to have you here. Uh, so we are we're recording the show live, and so if you have a question for for uh, Stephen, you can call in at six four six 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 eight eight two five seven. And so uh, the topic for discussion today, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about his book mentioned in, in his bio, Uncertain Bioethics, Moral Risk, and Human Dignity. Uh, specifically, a couple of arguments that he has in the book, uh, specifically the moral risk argument. And uh, he has another one in there, too, uh, called the argument from epistemic uh, diffidence. And so I'd like to maybe touch on that a little bit, too. Uh, So, Stephen, the first question I like to start off with whenever I have a guest is, uh, why are you pro-life? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, So the the why I'm pro-life is I, I actually 
uh, came to see pro-life arguments to be more plausible than than uh, so-called pro-choice arguments. What got me what got me to really think about these issues and, and devote a good chunk of my academic work um, to these issues um, actually occurred when I uh, attended a lecture by um, uh, by Father Tad Paholchik. Uh, and uh, he, he also worked for the uh, National Catholic Bioethics Center, but I attended the lecture before I was um, hired there. And his lecture on embryonic stem cell research really, really struck me. And he used an analogy, and he had some arguments in there to motivate the view that, uh, you know, nascent human life um, has inherent dignity. And, you know, he's a clear-headed thinker, and I just really, it really struck me, and I thought I had to, had to do some more writing. Not, not that Father, Father Tad's work was insufficient, but I just felt like I needed to, to add a voice and to articulate some more arguments in that regard. Hmm. Yeah. So, so it was really a lecture on, on stem cell research that kind of solidified your, your pro-life position. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, before that, like there, I, I actually don't remember when I, you know, made a decision that I was uh pro-life or anything like that. I mean, I kind of leaned towards the pro-life position, um, certainly throughout grad school, but I never really thought about the issue. <laughs> See, uh, that's the thing. You know, it's, right. it's hard to answer a question like this when you haven't thought about it. And then when I did start thinking about it, it was, you know, it was after I was exposed to that lecture. And that's when I really kind of threw myself into it. And, uh, and you know, that's when I can self-conscious, you know, point in my memory clearly uh, this, this was a moment where I was clearly pro-life. And uh, I was trying to articulate arguments to to motivate that position. Okay, and so your your recent book, then the one that you published last year, is called "Uncertain Bioethics: Moral Risk and Human Dignity." Um, now it's kind of an expensive book in print, but I did find it available for free on Kindle, uh, and I, I think it's still available for free. Uh, so if you know anyone's listening and, and would like to to take a look through it, if they want to go deeper into this, uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, but so this, this book then is really a book that looks at the overall discipline of bioethics, cause, uh, correct? You have uh, uh, you, you touch on things like abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research, all these kinds of things in, in the book. That's correct. Yeah, I try to address a number of issues that involve uh, either intentional killing or intentional withholding of, of life support that would end up uh, with the person dying or or being harmed in some way, probably the only oddball that I address is research ethics. But there, I'm concerned about research that's done in a way that could potentially harm um, research subjects. And uh, there again, my concern was to apply the the uh, notions of moral risk to a, uh, to an area of bioethical discourse that didn't wasn't explicitly a case of killing, just to show that this application has a wider scope um, within bioethics. Okay, and so uh, research ethics then would, would deal with questions like, uh, are, are children able to consent to, uh, to medical research, uh, things like that, or is, is there, are there different questions that, 
that that kind of uh, field would would answer. Yeah. So there, yeah, there, that's one certainly one question that's that's uh, relevant within research ethics. Um, another question is uh, doing risky research on human subjects who can consent, right? Ah. Uh, if somebody can consent and the researcher is doing uh, very risky research, does does the fact that they consent is that enough to justify that risky research? Um, mm. That's another question. So. Even even if consent is is on the is assumed, you still have ethical issues in research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's kind of a kind of a an idea that our culture seems to take for granted is as long as you cont- consent to something, it is right and proper for you to do it. Uh, so, what would you say to someone who then thinks that consent is really all you need for something to be permissible? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so. So it's it's one thing. Well, there's this uh, nice story that I use in that chapter. Uh, it's actually I borrow it from Carl Elliott, who's at the University of Minnesota, and he has this nice uh, reflection where, you know, if somebody consents, let, let's say let's say you have a, a research protocol and this research is very risky, um, but you can uh, you think. Let's say you're a subject in that research study, and you think that by being involved in this research, um, you might be able to advance science. And so your consent there is, you know, the fact that you consent is is not problematic at all. What's problematic is someone else taking advantage of that consent, the researcher. So you, what? Where there might be an ethical problem is not so much in whether or not the subjects are doing anything wrong by consenting, but whether the clinical researcher who's doing the research actions, who's performing the research actions on the subject, whether that person is doing something wrong. Um, and to motivate this, I actually use a, a very macabre case, <laughs> but, but a fairly famous one, of uh, this uh, Armin Muse in, in a case in Germany a couple of years ago. Uh, where um, a, a uh, person consented to be killed and eaten by Armin Muse. And uh, the fact that the, the person consented to this doesn't make the actions right. Uh, and I think most people have that intuition. Um, yeah. And so that, that would be just one case, a fairly extreme case, to motivate how limited it is, you know, just, just because somebody consents, so something doesn't make the actions that are done on that person correct right. or, or morally morally beneficial. Yeah, and considering that that animals, uh, especially you know human beings too, uh, being you know, rational animals, have this this ingrained innate sense of survival. And so it seems like someone who might consent to be killed and eaten by somebody else uh, might not even really be consenting uh, or being of sound mind when they consent. Does that, does that sound like something that might also kind of play into that uh, kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, you can use, uh, you know, you can use the fact that they are consenting to something that's bad as a reason for thinking that they're not competent. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, notice, to, to, to make that argument, you have to assume that what is being done to them is bad. Um, mm-hmm. And right. so it, it gets harder to motivate that premise when you're talking about cases like uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, mm-hmm. 
where, I mean, you have to put forth the argument that that, that action is clearly wrong. I mean, yeah. to me, in the Muse case, uh, it's clearly wrong to kill somebody. Um, <laughs> uh, right. But, uh, you know, just and, and eat them. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, so it, it was just the you could go two different directions there. You can use the badness of the action to argue that the person's not competent, or you can mm-hmm. assume that the person's competent and then argue that still that doesn't mean that the action is no longer, uh, that the, that the action that the person rationally consents to still is a, a morally permissible action. So okay. you can go either way there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I certainly don't mind, uh, macabre thought experiments. I mean, I, you know, I, I study a bit of uh, philosophy and, you know, they, they really get in, into this sometimes, you know, like the, the trolley thought experiment where you can let five people die or, or switch the track and kill one person to save the other five. And yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of macabre uh, thought experiments. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So two concepts then, which are important to the overall case in your book are the concepts of moral risk and epistemic diffidence. So what then is moral risk? So good. Yeah. Moral risk. Um, moral risk is basically the risk in being wrong that a moral judgment that you're making is correct. Hmm. So if, uh, if, if you think that your uh, moral particular moral judgment in a particular case is correct, moral risk would be the risk uh, in being wrong about that judgment. Now, some judgments, there's not really a lot at stake in some moral judgments, uh, but I think that a lot is at stake in cases of moral judgments where the content of that judgment is that a particular feeling is permissible. Um, so uh, that's the basic idea behind moral risk, and I have a little, I have a couple of thought experiments to illustrate how the idea of moral risk really, I mean, it kind of shows up in all of our thinking. It's not a foreign concept to how we think morally. Yeah. Um, so do, do you want me to, I could try to motivate that or go on to explain epistemic diffidence briefly. Um, yeah, go ahead and let, let's, let's stick on moral risk for just a moment. Uh, yeah. So, if, so if, yeah, if you could maybe expand on it a little bit and maybe even show how an argument for moral risk against something like abortion or euthanasia uh, might be made. Yeah. Okay. So, so to motivate the, the, the idea that, you know, this notion of moral risk is shows up in, in, in our thinking. So suppose I'm traveling in the outback of Australia with my 10 year old son and we happen across a watering hole. The reason why I pick Australia is because apparently seven out of 10 of the most dangerous animals live in there. <laughs> so I do have friends in Australia. I love them, but um, you know, apparently. I've actually wanted to uh, visit Australia for some time, but then I got to look at how big the spiders are over there, and no thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, they could be pretty good. So yeah. suppose I really want—I really want to go for a swim, but I just mm-hmm. don't know if the water's safe, right? I don't know if there's there might be a crocodile over on the other bank in the underbrush that I can't see, or there might be piranha in there. Um, now, suppose I want to test the safety of the water by having my 10-year-old son jump in first. Now, that's just oh. almost risible, right? You, 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 right? That's almost funny. To, to, uh, so right, right. That, that kind of illustrates more. I mean, it's like, I don't know if it's safe. It might be 
safe. It might not be safe. Uh, why don't you try it? Um, <laughs> right. And so I think the case here illustrates at least four, three or four points that I that I try to highlight in the book throughout. And the first is that there is a risk in being wrong that the water is safe. And that risk in being wrong is principally borne by someone else. And that mimics you know, cases of abortion and euthanasia. If you're wrong that abortion or euthanasia is permissible, guess what? If you're the clinician, you're doing this. Uh, you don't suffer those wrongs. Somebody else is killed. Hmm. Somebody else is harmed. Right. Third, the intuition in the story is that one would be one would need a fairly strong argument that the water is in fact safe before I go ahead and have my ten year old son jump in. So the idea with moral risk is that it kind of raises the bar of what's what the bar of the strength of justification that you're going to need behind that argument. And then in the specifics of the content of my book, the arguments for permissible killing, abortion, euthanasia, etc., I argue that they don't rise to that level of strength needed to offset the risk of being wrong. Mm. So that's so, how that's basically how moral risk works in the argument. Okay, so just to kind of stick on the example of of the possibility of the lake having uh, piranhas or an alligator or something, uh, obviously a father would be morally negligent to say this water might be dangerous. I'll let my ten year old son go in first and then go in if he doesn't, you know, get, you know, bitten by an alligator or something. Uh, but what? Uh, how would that then? Uh, how would that affect the moral equation about whether or not the man himself should go in and give it a try? Is there some kind of uh, some kind of thing, some kind of like moral equation or something he could weigh to determine whether or not the risk is uh, negligible or the risk is at least makes it permissible for him to go in and test out the lake? Yeah. So there too, I would be fine. I mean, if I'm in that position, I would want more, more justification than just an eye glance around the waterhole. Um, you know, I'd want to know maybe uh, maybe there's a there's a guide, um, a nature guide person who uh, is familiar with the watering hole and says that it's safe. But I would, I mean, even if I'm the one who's going to be jumping in, I would want more than just an just a uh, just looking around the area. Uh, given the given what's at stake, right? What's at stake is that I get I get attacked by a dangerous animal and possibly die. Right. So then, basically, the argument for moral risk regarding, for example, abortion would simply be: um, we don't know with uh, with a high level of certainty whether or not the unborn is a person. So we don't know with a high level of certainty whether or not someone will actually be harmed. And so, moral risk would then say that we shouldn't have the abortion because we don't we don't have strong enough knowledge to know that someone won't be hurt by the procedure? Uh, that's the way, yeah, that's the intuitive way it's supposed to work. So, the, But this is where the piece of epistemic diffidence, or uh, I use the term epistemic diffidence just to mm-hmm. kind of sticks in your mind, but diffidence yeah. just means a lack of confidence. And so I, I think that moral risk has to be paired with an argument that you ought to be diffident, or at least you know, there's a you should be um, hold your judgment that it's permissible with a level of skepticism, mm-hmm. and it's that skepticism paired with the risk of being that justifies not not doing the action. 
All right. And so since it's already uh, been broached, let's go ahead and, and talk about epistemic diffidence then. Um, how, how would you how would you define epistemic diffidence in the overall context of your of your of the case that you make in your book? Yeah, good. So the 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 idea of epistemic diffidence is uh, you know kind of a just a dictionary. I don't use a technical definition. It's just a straightforward def, uh, dictionary definition of diffidence is the lack of confidence or um, uh, the idea of uh, caution. And so the epistemic diffidence would be just this lack of confidence that my beliefs are true, um, or or at least uh, holding my beliefs with a level of healthy skepticism or caution. And I guess what motivates epistemic diffidence, um, so you want, you want to think of it, you want to think of it this way. So the first chapter or second chapter, I think, um, I address how we think morally. And so the, the, the purpose of that chapter is to argue that there are a number of different biases and ways in which our moral intuitions and our moral perception um, might go wrong, right? Um, might not correctly apprehend the moral environment. And so that chapter serves the function of establishing a level. Not a, not a, I don't want to make too strong of a claim here, but a level of skepticism or diffidence regarding our moral faculties. And then I, I think disagreement, I think, is a very important piece to motivate diffidence on specific subjects. So peer disagreement, you know, if, if you uh, come across somebody who uh, disagrees with you on a, on a particular uh, subject matter, and you have no reason for thinking that that person is uh, uh, smarter or dumber or uh, hasn't considered the issue as thoroughly as you, you have no reason for thinking, you, in fact, you might have every reason for thinking that this person has considered this issue just as much as you have. Well, uh, that, that would be a case of peer disagreement. And you now, because of that, and across that disagreement, you have a reason for thinking that you may have missed something, right? So this is the reason for being skeptical that your moral faculties were functioning correctly on that particular issue. So, so, so the, the chapter where I talk about some of the biases that can plague our ability to apprehend moral reality and then the piece of disagreement, peer disagreement. If you pair those two together, um, you have a reason for thinking that your faculties are not functioning uh, properly or they're not functioning to produce true belief on this particular issue, whatever that issue is. Right. Now, that's not enough to say you can't act because I think David Buenin is correct. You can't just say that um, you know, there's a risk in being wrong that uh, uh, abortion is permissible, therefore you shouldn't do it, because he has a very nice counterexample to hmm. that my grass outside has a right to life, uh, or it doesn't have a right to life. There's a risk in being wrong about that judgment, that it doesn't, right? Um, right. Now, it's, it's a very low probability, but think about the number of mass murders that take place if you mow your lawn and you're wrong about that judgment, right? Right. Um, so, you know, just the likelihood 
of being wrong can be very, very low, but if we just keep on adding the gravity or the seriousness of the risk in being wrong, even then you still don't have a reason for not doing the action. Hmm. You really only have a reason for not doing the action by really jumping in and looking at the justifications that are offered for and against that position. Some pro-life thinkers, uh, such as uh, Peter Kreft, uh, make a sort of epistemic argument in which they uh, – I don't, I don't know if they've ever really given a name to it or not. Uh, that's just kind of what I've been referring to it as. But they argue that since no one has conclusively proven the unborn are not persons, we're not justified in killing them because we might be wrong about thinking that they're not persons. Someone might use the example of if you're, if you're driving down a street and you see a, a jacket lying in the middle of the freeway – and you're not sure if there's a person under it, you'll drive around and you won't drive over it. Or if you're going to blow up a condemned building, you always want to make sure that there's no one inside before you blow it up. And so this argument that you're making for moral risk and epistemic diffidence, would you say that this is a similar sort of argument to that? Or is this, or, or is this different in some important respects? Yeah, so it's good. And, and it, uh, I totally respect Kreeft, and there are a couple other uh, people who have focused on the issue of risk, particularly in the abortion issue. And I think that my tactic is slightly different. Uh, of course, I, I, I'm sympathetic with the projects that they're engaged in, but I think that um, what I'm trying to do is slightly different. And it's slightly different because you know, you could you could make the same argument that you know we might be, you know, no one has conclusively proven that grass doesn't have a right to life, or that uh, I don't know uh, that it's uh, wrong to eat uh, meat from animals or something like that. Um, and so, just citing a probability or making a claim that there's a risk in being wrong, and if you're wrong, there would be this grave evil that would result. Therefore, you shouldn't do the action. I think that line of thinking is prey or open to these counterexamples that uh, that I mentioned that that Boonen, uh gives about the right to life of grass. Now that might be um, might might be a little extreme case, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to address that. Right, I'm trying to uh, craft an argument that would be satisfactory to the the David Boonins of the world. Um, right, and to do that, I think it's I really try to focus on this idea of peer disagreement and to, to motivate that there is, in fact, peer, peer that, that there's an equal disagreement here. I have to consider the arguments in intimate detail and respond to them. And by doing so, I, are, I'm, I think I successfully argue that the pro-life argument or the person who's uh, propounding these arguments is in fact an epistemic peer, and they disagree with the um, the the, uh, the opposing view, right? The the view that uh, abortion is permissible, right? And that's enough, right? That's what is enough for my argument to go through. So it's the uh, skepticism we should have about the functioning of our moral faculty. Mm -hmm. That's not huge, but then when you add peer disagreement. Um, and then you add the moral risk, then you get an argument that you should not act. And it's arguing, you have to argue, and I try to do this, that there is in fact peer disagreement on this issue. 
does that does that help to, to distinguish? Cause it's, it's not uh, the, uh, like you're right. I mean, Crafe uh, d- does highlight that you know there's there's this risk in being wrong, and that there mm-hmm. no one has conclusively proven. Um, but I think my project is different in that I'm trying to focus on arguing that there's in fact peer disagreement, and to do that, there has to mm-hmm. be this back and forth. I have to consider the arguments that Boonin and McMahon and and some others give and respond. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely very helpful. And, you know, I, I definitely fully agree with, you know, responding to the, the you know, most sophisticated critics that, that pro-life people have. And so I'm, I'm glad to see the conversation continue. Now, would you say that your book is, is pretty technical or should people who are interested in reading more about these topics um, should they should they read like an introduction to these these issues before delving into your book, or is your book written for the kind of the lay audience in mind as well? Yeah, good question. So uh, I did write this book so that it would be readable to an undergraduate or um, a, a graduate student who hasn't been exposed to the issues. Um, so I'm actually I don't know if this might answer your question. Is I'm actually assigning this book. Uh, to my class this semester. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah. But I, it, you know, you, you mentioned it's it is available open access, uh, and you can actually get it through different sources. Of, forgive the sales pitch, but it's not just Amazon. Yeah. But if you go to Rutledge's website, and you you can download the PDFs of all the chapters off their website. Um, just punch in my name, Uncertain Bioethics, and Rutledge, and that will take you right to the page. Yeah. Um, uh, I- yeah, I, I certainly don't mind the sales pitch because one of the reasons for having you on is I want, you know, to make people aware of, of your book because I think it makes a very important contribution to the literature on bioethics. Yeah, and, and I, it, like I said, it, I think it would be readable certainly to, I mean, certainly to your audience, uh, I think, mm-hmm. if they picked it up. Uh, I mean, some of the words I use, they might have, a, have to have a dictionary uh, handy. Um but uh, like I have a friend of mine who's who's reading it, and he could understand what was going on if he had a dictionary handy. Uh, but mm-hmm. I don't think in terms of the technicality and the logic of it, I I try to try to write in such a way that uh, if somebody pays attention, they can follow through the argument. Yeah, and I, I did uh, I did think that you explained the terms really well in the introduction of the book. Uh, just reading through the introduction, I had a pretty good idea of, you know, where you were planning on on taking the arguments and what you were kind of intending by moral risk and epistemic diffidence. And so I, I thought the introduction was really helpful uh, in that regard as well. Thanks. Yeah. And so uh, you, you do mention the substance view in your book. Uh, do you uh, do you come at uh, the the field of bioethics from kind of an Aristotelian Thomistic perspective or or do you take kind of a different different view to that? Yeah, good. So I actually am very sympathetic with the Aristotelian understanding of uh, substances in general, and plus, you know, certainly the the human being. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I do come at a lot of bioethical issues uh, with those assumptions. Again, I think it's a plausible view. And as you can read in, in that chapter on persons, I also address the psycho, what's called the psychological accounts of the person. Hmm. Um, and I think there are some significant problems with 
that account. Um, and uh, I mean, we, we could talk about those, but yeah, uh, to answer your question directly, yeah, I, I find the substance view understood in the Aristotelian tradition as, as probably most plausible. Yeah, uh, when I was first becoming interested in, in the pro-life field, I read a book by Francis Beckwith called Defending Life. And oh, yeah. that was the, yeah, that was the book that really introduced me to the substance view. And since then, uh, I've come to realize that I believe it's kind of a minority position amongst philosophers, but I have started discovering more and more philosophers who do hold to that position, which is, which is great because, uh, like you, I think that that's the account of personhood and of uh, personal identity that I find the most plausible as well. We could talk about psychological accounts of personhood in a moment, uh, but actually I do have a, a question from Facebook that uh, a, a friend of mine wanted me to ask you. Uh, this is from Hassan Mohammed, and he wants to know whether or not evidence for the dependence of brain function on organismal function supports animalism. Ah, right. So uh, evidence, sorry, evidence of brain function. Say the, say the first part again. Oh, uh, that he wants to know whether or not evidence for the dependence of brain function on organismal function supports animalism. Yeah, it would certainly be evidence for animalism, yes. Um, I, I wouldn't say that there's a logical entailment from the dependence of brain function on, on organismic function to uh, the thesis that we are, um, that we are rational animals. Um, but it's, it certainly would be evidence for that thesis, absolutely. Regarding uh, personal identity then, which is a, a different question than, than personhood, uh, as far as personal identity is concerned, do you find animalism to be to be the plausible view of personal identity, or it, or it would um, your view, or would the substance view be a uh, a position of, of personal identity in that sense? Yeah, I'm inclined to think that personal identity can also be accounted for on the substance view. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, my, my my approach to our psychological capacities is that they are capacities of a substance. They cannot be reified into a separate substance substance themselves. And so, when uh, and I think um, Eric uh, Eric Olson is really good on this, and Paul Snowden both uh, both are very good on this. Highly recommend their works. Um, but uh, yeah, both of them uh, highlight. Uh, what's called the, the two thinkers problem. And it's a very somewhat technical argument, but the basic idea is that if you reify and make into a separate being uh, something that has a capacity for consciousness, Olson has a nice way of motivating what the problem might be. Consider that, pers consider that person right before the development of that capacity for consciousness and he's referring to the to the fetus, right, to, to the developing human being up until, I don't know, 22, 23 weeks or so. Yeah. And he asks this question, does, does the fetus die? Does, does the human being at that stage, right before the development of capacity for consciousness, does that human being die? And the intuition is no, <laughs> completely not, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so the human being persists, right? The human being continues to exist. Yeah. And the person begins to exist at uh, 22, 23 weeks or whatever. Um, and now, fast forward, 
uh, and he has an, another nice uh, thought experiment. He says, so now imagine, you know, we, we think with our brains, we, we perceive with our eyes, and, you know, your, your question from the Facebook person, you know, about the, uh, the relevance of the whole organism in terms of our perception and our cognition, you know, our nervous system. So when the person has a thought that uh, I'm sitting in this chair or I'm seeing certain things around my environment, the human being can have that thought as well. But if they're two separate things, you now have two different thinkers in the same skin. It's called the two thinkers problem. And um, the intuition is that there are not two thinkers (laughs) sitting in this chair. Uh, There's only one. Um, And so the psychological account of the person seems to get it wrong. Um, And it seems to me the simple adjustment to make is to just understand that the psychological capacities, those capacities for rationality, mental function, all that, are are just capacities of the person. They're not a separate thing. They're not a separate being. They're capacities of a person. Right. Um, and that person comes into being when um, at conception, that human persons are animals, uh, mm. uh, comes into being when, when a human being comes into being. Yeah. Uh, I do have a book that you edited called Persons, Moral Worth, and Embryos. Yeah. And – I, I remember that uh, Alexander Proust has an essay in that co- in that collection in which he argues that the reason abortion is wrong, or at least one thing that points to abortion being wrong, is that I was once a fetus. And that was, I think, a similar argument he made was that if the you know he, he calls it I guess the argument from identity, in which he says that if you know so these psychological accounts are true, then you know one of three things are are Correct. Either uh, the fetus died when I came into existence, or uh, or I am the fetus, or the fetus is still alive but separate from me. And of course, he argues that the that two of those three are not plausible. And so the only conclusion we can draw is that uh, is that I am the fetus. Um, that was in my mother's womb. Yeah, I would only say that I am that human being that was at the. Uh, I understand fetus to be a stage in the human development, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So I think it's better to say I was the human being at the fetal stage. Um, mm. We talk about identity across time. Yeah. That's the only, yeah. But yeah, I think he, uh, Proust is exactly, well, it <laughs> ended up in my volume. So I think he's right on that. <laughs> right. Yeah. I thought, I think that's uh that's a very, you know, compelling argument for the pro-life position as well. And so it's one that I've, kind of kept in my back pocket uh, for when I encounter someone who's very philosophically minded who doesn't agree. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in the book, you also talk about uh, moral foundations theory, which is meant to investigate how we think about moral issues. And one of the points that you draw out is that intuition comes before moral reasoning. Uh, could you explicate on that a little bit? Yeah. So this moral foundations theory is a theory of predominantly um, uh, propounded by Jonathan Haidt and Jesse Graham. And the idea there is with uh, intuitions coming first and reasoning second. Uh, keep, keep in mind that uh, Haidt, Haidt and Graham will make the claim that, that, that that's just what usually takes place. They're not saying that that must always take place. 
Um, but their evidence for this is moral dumbfounding. So if you get, you know, if you keep on asking somebody, you know, why why is uh, a case of apparent um, harmless wrongdoing? Um, uh, I mean, they, they have various cases. You know, eventually their, their subjects couldn't articulate um, a reason. They just, they just I, I, I just find this wrong. Or the subjects yeah. would say, I, I just find this, this is okay. Um, and so at a certain point of moral discourse, we just find something intuitively plausible. And if you pay attention to it, and this particularly comes out in uh, discourse on euthanasia, I mean, mm-hmm. some people just fundamentally see why can't a patient make a decision to commit suicide? Like, why can't she or he do that? Um, right. And that is kind of where that person's thinking starts. So intuitions come first and then reasoning comes second. Reasoning is, as Height says, hired out like a lawyer to defend that client. Mm. The client being the intuition. Right. And he contrasts yeah. that with being a judge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so moral foundations theory wants to say that typically in our moral thinking, intuitions come first, and then our moral reasoning kicks in to defend that intuition. And what I wanted to suggest is that, well, if that's typically the case, right, uh, it's not necessarily the case, but if that's typically the case, then we have reason for thinking that all of the rationalizations that we get, even though they might look really good to us, we might have really powerful arguments. But if we found out that we developed those arguments only to defend an initial intuition in the first place that could have gotten it wrong, well, that that's, that would be a reason for being dissonant. As, as soon as I read that, I definitely had some conversations that I previously had in mind, because I, I've always kind of had the the intuition, I guess, if you will, uh, that that uh, it, it's not just, it's, you know, it's not only that our intuitions can um, can define our, our views, but that I, I think our, our, our views can sometimes affect our intuition as well. And, and you know, and I, you know, I might be getting the, or putting the cart before the horse on this too, when I talk about the view uh, I guess affecting the intuition, because, for example, I have a very strong intuition that that the unborn are human beings, and that's what affects my my view on abortion. You know, I, I don't I don't have any sort of emotional attachment to the embryo or the fetus, but uh, but I'm convinced in my mind that that they are fully human, and so that's why I protect them by talking out about the issue. But then I encounter people who have very strong intuitions that the unborn are not persons and that they're not human and so it's, it's permissible to to kill them you know for a lot of reasons that you know they'd have to give up their sexual freedom if they became pro-life and things like that and so I, i've always kind of wondered if if the two kind of uh, kind of have i guess maybe like an inverse relationship or something maybe you you can set me straight on that no i think you're right so i think uh and you know i don't want to suggest or I didn't want to suggest in the book that intuitions are just kind of these bare starting points with nothing behind them, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, because people do have different intuitions, and uh, you explain those intuitions as maybe prior mo- uh, moral orientations, or there might might be um, 
beliefs that inform those intuitions. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe subconsciously or consciously, right? So I, I do want to leave, leave that open. Uh, but I guess getting back to uh, see that still that that doesn't uh, bother me. In fact, that plays right into right into my project. So you have these people, right? You you and I have one intuition, and then there are people who think that abortion is permissible have a different intuition. Right. Um, we can defend our intuition. We have a particular moral orientation to back that up. They have they have theirs. We're we're now in a situation of peer disagreement. All right. Well, as I argued in a section of the book on, on disagreement, that well, that that's a reason for thinking that my cognitive, my moral faculties may have may have gotten it wrong on this one issue, right? Um, and that right. when you pair that with the moral risk of being wrong, uh, then then I, I I think the the conclusion, or I argue that the conclusion that follows is that one ought not to perform that action. Another. Uh, another concept that you mentioned is the concept of undercutting defeaters. And ah. I was hoping you might be able to, to speak a little on that too. Uh, an undercutting defeater uh, being something like uh, some bit of information, which gives you reason to stop believing some piece of evidence for your view. And so a question I, I was, I had as I was reading was, and, and maybe you address this in the book in, in a portion that I hadn't gotten to yet. Uh, I, I read as much as I could before the, the interview here. So, yeah, and so, you know, I've heard epistemologists talk about defeaters too. I've read some, you know, Alvin Plantinga and, uh, and others like that where they talk about defeaters. And so a, a question I kind of had is when does something become an actual defeater for your view? Good. Yeah. So that's right. So that's an important point because um, if you don't believe in the defeater, then it's not a defeater, <laughs> right? Uh, right? It doesn't it doesn't exert any force on your beliefs or anything if you don't believe it. Um, so I think what has to occur is you have to argue that uh, a defeater, either an undercutting or some of their the other ones that were mentioned or rebutting defeater, whatever the de- kind of defeater it is, you have to argue that this defeater is sort of a live option, right? That, that right. It, uh, it is one that you ought to believe is, is functioning. Um, and I mean, just to spell that, I mean, maybe spell that out a little bit more exactly sure. what, what is the, what is the undercutting defeater here that I think is relevant um, well, it shows up in, in different in different arguments like abortion, euthanasia, etc. But I think that arguing that our faculties, our moral faculties, can go wrong, I think that is um, can function as an undercutting defeater. Okay, so yeah, so we are uh, getting close to the end of our time together here, Stephen. Where can people find you online? Yeah, so, uh, uh, well, uh, you can go to my um, my webpage at uh, Villanova University, mm-hmm. um, and there should be a link to my personal uh, website. Um, uh, it's not, not exactly in, I can't give it out, I don't even remember the, the domain for it, 
but you can access it by going through the Villanova's website. So, so just like a Google search, Stephen Napier, Villanova Philosophy Department, go to my webpage on uh, Villanova's website, and there should be a link there for my personal website. On my personal website, I have quite a few articles that I've uploaded, and um, I have a, a short and a long crazy or a, a summary of my book that people can go to uh, before uh, they want to put in the cognitive labor of leave, reading the whole thing. Um, I have some uh, articles on philosophy of religion, which your uh, audience might be interested in. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the best, best route to go. Just Google Villanova University, Stephen Napier philosophy department, go to my webpage and then, from there, you can go to to other things that I have. Okay, and once again, as a reminder, uh, Stephen's recent book, Uncertain Bioethics, Moral Risk, and Human Dignity, is available for free on Kindle on Amazon. And uh, as Stephen mentioned earlier, you can also find it uh, for free online on the uh, Routledge website, too. It's uh, it's available as an open access book. So, uh, so definitely uh, check it out, especially if you want to go deeper on uh, issues of bioethics. I wholeheartedly endorse uh, Stephen Napier's work. And my, my regular co-host, uh, Nathan, is also a fan of yours, Stephen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he's disappointed that he wasn't able to, to make it for the interview today. Oh, well, say hello to him, and, and uh, I appreciate it. And if he wants to email me or anything, or if you want to email me follow-up questions, that's fine. That'd be great. All right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as, soon as, I, as soon as I finish uh, reading your book, I, I'll probably have some, some follow-up questions. So I'd, I'd appreciate that. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so thank you again, uh, Steve, and um, for coming on the show and and uh, you know letting me uh, pick your brain for an hour or so. <laughs> no, it's been great. Uh, we'll uh, likely do it again sometime. Yeah. If you enjoyed this interview, uh, then please uh, share it around Facebook, uh, your social media, Twitter, wherever. Uh, you can also rate and review us on uh, on on. Uh, well, on our Facebook page. Also, uh, we are on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. And so, yeah, in fact, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't found us on Facebook, uh, go to our page. It's just, uh, you know, Facebook group Pro-Life Thinking. Uh, all of our upcoming events will post on there and even what we have coming up on the podcast as well, if you want to keep uh, up to date on that. And so now this is a, a weekly pod, or well, give or take. Uh, it's, you know, it's become a little little more stretched out than weekly, but uh, it's a it's a semi-regular podcast that we do, and it does take a lot of work to put together a, a podcast, and so on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement, as Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. Now, I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you'd like if you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax-deductible. And, of course, if you'd like to donate to the podcast specifically, just uh, indicate that in the notes and we'll put that toward uh, the the cost affiliated with the podcast. So we have um, a couple of upcoming events. Myself, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to the East Coast next week. Uh, at first, I'm uh, I'm going to be joined with Nathan and our friend Jody Ward 
uh, we're going to be attending the March for Life in Washington, D.C., which is next Friday. And then on Saturday, we're going to attend the Pro-Life Summit, uh, which is a Students for Life uh, uh, seminar, I believe. And then the following week, I'm going to be in Rock Hill, South Carolina. On uh, the following Monday, uh, we're going to be screening the movie Unplanned at Winthrop University. And then after the movie, myself, uh, my friend Melissa Palou, and a representative of Students for Life is going to be on a Q&A panel. And we're going to just take some questions about the movie and about the pro-life uh, movement in general. And then the following day, I'm going to give a talk at the Ratio Christi, uh, at their, their normal weekly meeting. And so I'll be, I'll be there doing that as well. Okay, and then uh, as far as upcoming guests, we actually have uh, Greg Kokel booked for our for our next uh, our next live uh, interview podcast, and that's going to be uh, I, I believe that's going to be February sixth, the Thursday at four p.m. Uh, I don't have my calendar in front of me. I should have should have brought that with me, but uh, if if you but I believe that's the day. And otherwise, if you just uh, check our our Facebook page, we'll have the specific date and the time there. But when we have Greg Kokel on the interview, we're going to talk about uh, his book, Tactics. He recently released the 10th anniversary edition of Tactics, which has expanded it a bit, and so you'll get about 40% more content, I believe, was the statistic I heard. So we're going to talk about, about tactics, about some of the tactics in the book, and some of the new material in his book. Okay, so once again, uh, I'd like to thank Stephen Napier for joining me, and thank you for listening, and then we will see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.